If you've ever wanted to know a lot about Michael, the archangel, and the devil, and the battles that they've been having, then you are, have chosen the proper study to go to because that's what we're talking about today. Revelation chapter 12 is an overview of all of history behind the scenes. What's taking place behind the scenes? We know what's taking place in the world. We know that there are wars and rumors of wars and there's pestilence and there's earthquakes and there's things that happen. But what's going on behind the scene? We know that God created man and wanted man to rule with him, but that dominion was given up. We know that God promised right away in Genesis 3 that a Messiah or, or one was going to be born of the woman who was going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise his heel. We also know that God promised Abraham very early on in the book of Genesis that one of his descendants was going to bless all nations. So God raised up the nation of Israel and gave his love to them that they might be able to bless all nations as a way in which he could bless all nations through by bringing Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, to the nations to be able to receive. And we also know that behind, behind the scenes, the enemy has been attacking and is attacking and wants to try to put a stop to the work. The Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The opposite of what Christ wants to do in saving people and setting them free. And so we saw last week, and I wanna read this, the, these verses. And if you're interested in what other people believe about these, six, uh, these first six verses and a false prophecy that was given in 2017, we covered that in our last study. I can't remember what the title was, but it's Revelation 12, one through six. I just wanna read this to you and I'll talk a little bit about the proper way to look at this. Uh, it says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head was a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now we're getting a snapshot of what's happening behind the scenes. This is the nation of Israel. Joseph had a dream where he talked about the, the moon and the sun and the 11 stars bowing down to him. So this is the nation of Israel and giving birth is giving birth to the Messiah. And they had troubles that came their way because they were chosen by God to bring the Messiah into the world. It says, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his head. We talked about what all that meant last week. He, uh, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So this great dragon, we're told in verse nine, is Satan, the serpent of old, the devil. This is the arch enemy. This is who this is. And he draws a third of the stars with him. We believe that the stars here are angels and a third of the angels fell with him. And we're gonna get this right away, that Satan has angels. He's fallen and he took a third of the angels with him. This is where we get that from, by the way. There's no other passage that tells us that a third of the angels fell. It's just with his tail, he took a third of the stars. And so there are people who don't believe that that's exactly what that means. I do. It goes on to say, um, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we know that Satan tried to destroy Jesus as a baby. So uh, she bore a, a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
This is Jesus, the Messiah in the millennium. And her, her child was caught up to God in the throne. Now that encompasses his ministry, uh, his arrest, his passion, his suffering, and his being resurrected up into heaven. And it says, where she has placed, um, excuse me, then the woman fled into the wilderness. And this is why we say that this cannot be Mary. If you're Greek Orthodox or if you're Catholic, then you've seen pictures of Mary dressed up, clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and a garland of 12 stars. But it can't be Mary because how is Mary pursued by the dragon for three and a half years? This is the children of Israel in the middle of the tribulation period. The abomination of desolation happens. We think that this is when this battle takes place and they realize that Jesus is the Messiah. They end up coming to him. Let me read it again. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So that's three and a half years. God in the middle of the tribulation period supernaturally protects Israel by bringing them to a place in the wilderness. Now that's where we stopped at last week. And we get verse seven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels. So now we learn that Michael is like a, is like a chief angel. It's, it's Michael and his angels who fight against the dragon and his angels. This is, a, this is kind of a little bit shocking. It's a war in heaven. And I'm gonna show you why we don't believe it was in the past. Where, where do exactly do we place this? It's gotta be someplace in the future. And we'll talk about uh, why that is in just a moment. But let's consider, first of all, Michael. Michael, the archangel. Each time that we see him, it's in connection with a conflict. We don't have very many verses on him. We're very familiar with him, but we don't have a lot of verses on him. He is called the archangel. In Jude 1.19, he's called, uh, it says, uh, yet Michael, the archangel, is in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared to bring, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so here he's called the archangel, which makes us think that there's only one, that he's the, he's the one that's above all of them, okay? But in Daniel 10, 13, there's something else said that makes us think, well, there's other, others who serve in the same capacity. In Daniel 10, 13, but the prince of the king of Persia withstood me. This is Gabriel telling Daniel about his battles, uh, spiritual battles. Um, the prince here would be like principalities and powers and a spiritual force of wickedness. It seems that there's rankings in the demonic realm. It says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. So now we're told in Jude 1, 9 that Michael the archangel, but now we're told Michael, one of the chief princes. So it seems like there are other chief princes besides Michael. Now it doesn't mean that Michael is not the archangel or wouldn't be the top angel, that he wouldn't have other chief angels. It would be like saying, I don't know, there's, you know, 
there are four generals who run, you know, they're probably more than that, who run um, the, the Air Force. And one of them would be the four-star general who would run it all. Maybe there'd be more than one four-star four <laughs> four general, so on. But um, Michael only says four words, at least they are translated into four words in the Bible. And that's interesting that the chief angel, uh, one of the prince angels and one of the chief angels said, the Lord rebuke you. That's the only four words that he said. When he contended with Satan over the body of Moses, and I don't know why they were fighting over the body of Moses. We think maybe it's because God was going to resurrect him and use him as one of the two witnesses. And again, you know, we speculate in those areas. We don't know for sure. But for some reason, God buried Moses, the only person in the Bible that we know that God buried. And Satan wanted to know where it was at. And him and Michael contended over uh, the body of it. And uh, Michael didn't even speak in his own authority. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, there are some that teach that M Michael the archangel is Jesus. And, and here's their thinking, okay? Now, this is a, th th it's a Jehovah Witnesses. And the Seventh-day Adventists believe it as well. Um, Seventh-day Adventists, you just got, you got to be careful. Some of them are, are really follow God and are really serving him. There was a move back in the 70s among the Seventh-day Adventist churches uh, to get rid of a lot of the weirdnesses and the cult kind of stuff. And there are some Seventh-day Adventist churches that remained in the cultic area. And there are others that are, are, we would say today, are our brothers and our sisters that are in Christ. The Jehovah Witnesses are a, a cult, meaning they're aberrant to Christianity. Okay? Um, so they, and, and here's the reason that they say that they believe that Michael is Jesus because Jesus in the Old Testament appears as the angel of the Lord. And so if Michael is the archangel and Jesus appears as the angel of the Lord, then they're putting the connection together that Michael must be Jesus because he's the angel and Michael's the archangel. However, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about the spiritual realm. So we don't want to take leaps where leaps are not warranted. Now, Michael does say to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, which I've seen people use for evidence that Michael is not Jesus. The Lord rebuke you. He didn't say I rebuke you. He said the Lord rebuke you. But we have the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament with the priest in front of him and, the, and Satan standing to accuse him. And the angel of the Lord says the Lord rebuke you. So you really can't use that because the angel of the Lord is Christ. And you really can't use that to try to say that he wouldn't say it. It's, it's not a good argument. I think the best argument that we have that they are not the same person is you would have never have referred to Jesus in Jude 1, 9 as, excuse me, to, in Daniel, um, where am I at here? In Jude 1, 9, in, in Daniel 12, 13 as one of the chief princes. We would never refer to Jesus. The New Testament tells us all things were made by him, for him and through him. He made everything visible and invisible, principalities and powers, which means Jesus made the princes and he's one of the chief princes. And so God had made him. Now in Daniel 10, 21, it says, but I tell you, this is again, Daniel, Daniel 10, 21. I tell you what is noted in scripture of truth. No one upholds me except Michael, your prince. We learned something else about Michael. 
that Michael is the prince of the nation of Israel. It seems we have the prince of Persia in Daniel that, that Gabriel fights against. We have the prince of Greece in Daniel that Gabriel has to fight against. We know that Michael spelled him and we know that these two angels battle these world powers and the world powers in their day were Persia and then were Greece that came after them. And we know that Michael is a prince or an angel over the nation of Israel, which makes us wonder whether or not nations have angels and demonic forces that are going on behind the scenes. We know in Revelation that churches have angels. We know that there is a demonic, there, there's a spiritual warfare that's going on because we're told, put on your armor and then stand. Now, in Revelation 12, 7, we see here that he's clearly the leader of the angels. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and, and his angels fought with the dragon, the dragon and his angels. So the dragon is obviously the leaders of the, the fallen angels. Michael is the leader of the, the angels that remain faithful, the two thirds that remain faithful. Now, it also says at the return of Jesus that there's gonna be the shout of the archangel. Listen to what it says. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the resurrection spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And no matter where you put the resurrection, if you, if you believe that there's gonna be a resurrection before the tribulation period, you're gonna to have to deal with people who are alive who are faithful to Christ. If you put it in the middle, you're gonna to have to deal with people who are alive who are faithful to Christ. If you put the resurrection at the end of the tribulation period, then you're gonna to have to, you're gonna have, people are gonna be alive that are gonna to have to be changed. And so Paul said that we are not all gonna sleep. I tell you a mystery. We are not all gonna sleep, but some are gonna be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. I get so frustrated with the people that just go, the rapture isn't true. The rapture isn't, uh, is never taught in scripture. It's like, I don't know what scripture you're reading. And maybe you better clarify instead of just saying, uh, they'll say things like the rapture was, was only taught for the last 200 years. It was never taught in church history, history, which is just not true. It's just not a true statement. And if you're going to make a statement, especially critical of a position, then you should make sure that what you're saying is accurate. Irenaeus, who was a, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, talks about the rapture happening before the tribulation period. The Didache, which was an early New Testament document that wasn't biblical, talked about being ready for Jesus because he could return at any moment, which is a, a very biblical teaching. But if you believe that Jesus can return at any moment, then you are looking for him to come back for you before the tribulation period. Because no one's gonna be surprised at the end of the tribulation period. If you live through the tribulation period and, and you get to the end, you're not gonna go, I wasn't expecting you. I can't believe you showed up. No, if you've been in the tribulation period, you're watching the things happening, you're counting the seven years and you're looking up and you're going, Jesus is coming back any moment, you're gonna know. But Jesus said, I'm coming at a time you do not expect me. Therefore, be ready. These are just some of the reasons that I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But if someone doesn't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, I have no problem with that. If someone goes, you know what, I'm post-tribulation, I'm mid-tribulation. 
I'm fine with that. It just drives me crazy when people go, there's no such thing as the rapture. Good, solid teachers, guys that I listen to and I think this guy handles the word of God well and all of a sudden he goes, there's no rapture. And I'm like, what, what's, your, what's your phone number? Can I call you? I just want to talk to you a little bit. I just want to find out what, if you say that, there, if, that we are not going to meet the Lord in the air, what does that mean if that doesn't mean that? When it says, oh, well, I'll tell you a mystery, we're not all going to sleep, but may die, but some are going to be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye, then I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where you're getting that from at all. But when Jesus returns for his church, there is a trumpet, there is a shout of Christ, there is a trumpet, and there is the voice of the archangel. Now, as I said, Michael is not Jesus. This is the, the best. There are a lot of verses I could have gone over and I, I pared it down. I didn't want to spend a long time talking about this. So this is Hebrews 1, 5 through 8. And all of Hebrews 1 is talking about Jesus's preeminence over the angels. All of the, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is above everything. There's nothing that Jesus is not above. He's preeminent above it all. That's the theme. So in chapter one, it's, he's preeminent over the angels. So here's what it says in Hebrews 1, 5 through 8. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. There's a distinction between the son and the angels. It goes on to say, and, um, and all the angels, he, and to the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, literally his servants a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of your kingdom. And here, God calls the son of God, God. Really important for us to understand because cults like to say, Jesus is the son of God, he's not God. But Hebrews 1, 5 through 8 is the verses that you go to to show them that God calls the Son of God, God. That was reference to the Son of God in Psalm chapter 2 is that Jesus is God. Now, verse 8. Uh, so we've got the war going on in heaven. It's over pretty quickly. But they did not prevail. That is, the dragon and his angels didn't prevail. Nor was a place found in them in heaven any longer. So the fallen angels and Satan had access to the heavens. We're talking about the third heavens now. We're talking about where his throne is. We've got the first heaven, which is our atmosphere. We've got the second heavens, which is the universe, which we've got the new telescope making all kinds of discoveries now, right? That's in, would be in the second heavens. Then we have the third heavens where his throne is. This is where Paul says, I was caught up into the third heavens. And now Satan and his angels no longer have access up into heaven. And we wonder, did they ever have access? After he fell, why did God allow him to continue on? Couple of reasons. The Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. Satan, like standing in front of the high priest accusing him, Satan accuses us. In that way, he's kind of a creep. And, and here I don't know if when it says Satan, whether it's the literal person of Satan, who is the slanderer, because the name Satan means opposer. The name devil means slanderer. So Satan stands against you and he is a slanderer. So in Job 1, 6, it says, 
Now, when the day, uh, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Note that the sons of God is a reference to angels. Later on in the book of Job, God says to Job in Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So at this day, the sons of God are presenting themselves to God and Satan presents himself with them. And God says to Satan, where have you been and what have you been doing? He says, I've been going to and fro on the earth and observing the heart of men. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? So God's the one that brings Job up to Satan. But we see him going back and forth on the earth and able to have access up into heaven. That's why we believe that this is not the battle when he fell. He fell sometimes previous to this. And now this is a battle where he only has access to earth and doesn't have access to the heavens anymore. And we're going to see that it creates a great deal of problems. So then in verse 10, and I heard a loud voice, a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So there is this arch enemy, the devil, Satan. He opposes God. He slanders his people. He slanders God. We're also going to learn that he is extremely cunning and very deceptive. And something that you might not know is his name is not Lucifer. And I think that's great for us as Christians to know because the world wants to put out TV shows and movies, Lucifer, you know, and they think they've got the arch enemy's name, but God is mocking him in Isaiah 14. I'm going to get to that here in a minute. I've got, I've got it here. Um, so I'm going to get to that here in just a moment. But listen to what, um, listen to what Revelation 12, 9 says. Again, uh, so the great dragon was cast out the serpent of old, so that's the serpent in the garden, the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, Satan, the opposer, who deceives the whole world. So he deceives the entire world. I believe that we're seeing Satan's deception today. I believe that the things in the Bible that tell us what the last days are going to be like are like these days. And I think we're seeing lies. I think that postmodernism was one of the first steps in that. And so one of the main tenets of postmodernism is there is no absolute truth. Once you can tear down anyone believing in an absolute truth, then you go, well, whatever I deem to be true is true. Now, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler in the book called I Have Too Much Faith to Be an Atheist deal with how you should deal with someone who says to you, truth is uh, relevant. It, it, there's no such thing as absolute truth. What would Frank Turek say? Is that true? Is it true that there's no absolute truth? Because you just said there's an absolute truth. So is that absolute truth that you told me true, that there's no absolute truth? Because that's an absolute truth claim, right? So it falls back on itself. It ends up being self-defeating. We all know that there is a difference between subjective truth and objective truth. Subjective truth. I like the color blue. You might hate the color blue. That's subjective. 
You can't say everybody in the world loves blue because they don't. It's subjective. So there are things that are a matter of opinion and choice and likes and dislikes and that's subjective truth. But we don't confuse that with objective truth, which is when a car is green, you don't say, eh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's red. Now you may be red, green, colorblind, you may have a problem there. But if you know that a car is, I don't know, lime green, and you say, not to me, that car's black. Well, this is an objective truth. We could bring a third party in. We could have the paint tested. We could scientifically test it. We know it's true. Now, postmodernism doesn't necessarily say that the color of a car isn't objectively true or false, but they're gonna say when it comes to religion, when it comes to the way you live, there are things that are object, uh, subjective about what is right and wrong. And this is the way that the enemy has been able to deceive the world today, where people are searching their own hearts. The Bible says our hearts are wicked. We are behind our hearts. So when you say, I just pray and I see whether I like it or not, whether it feels good to me or not, that's, that's not the way, your feelings are deceptive and you're behind your feelings and you might like something that's sinful. You yourself might go, I like that thought of telling that person off. It must be the Lord leading me to tell them off because I like it. No, your flesh likes it. And so you feel like, yes, I would like to do that. I'm, going, I'm being led by the spirit. No, you're being led by your flesh because it goes opposite of what the scriptures say. So the scriptures become our authority, rightly divided. And that's really important because anybody can take a verse out of context and make it say whatever they want to say but rightly dividing the word of God has to become the source of truth. Why? Because the devil deceives the whole world and sin is deceptive, it says in the book of Hebrews. And we are self-deceived, it says in the Bible. That's like a triple whammy. We're, we deceive ourselves, Satan deceives the world, and sin itself is deceitful. So when you're tempted, sin isn't like, Go ahead, get, get, get all the way into this. I'm going to destroy your life. Doesn't say that. It, it, it looks good for a while. There's joy in sin. It says for a season, which Moses chose not to enter into the joy in sin for a season, but to suffer hardship with his brethren. So he made a decision to do that. So what kind of things is Satan trying to deceive the world about today? And, and where is the world buying it? And, and why are Christians being attacked at a whole new level, at a whole new rate. And they really are. So Isaiah 14, 12 and 14 tells us about this arch enemy, Satan. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And so you say to me, but wait a minute, there's his name. It's Lucifer, son of the morning. Yeah, that's in the King James Bible and the new King James Bible, which happens to be the one that I use. And the Texas Receptus, is a set of manuscripts that they use to make the, the New King James Bible and the King James Bible. And it's a good Bible, but when the King James, the people who were, who were putting together the King James version of the Bible, right? Because they took manuscripts and they had to bring it over into English. They used the word Lucifer, which is Latin for morning star. 
how you have fallen from heaven. If you've got the NIV or the ESV in front of you, it's going to say how you have fallen from heaven, O shining one or O morning star. It's going to have some, it's going to talk like that. Because Satan wanted to be like Jesus. He wanted to be the morning star. He wanted to lift his throne above the throne of God. And so God's mocking him. How you have fallen. And he was perfect in his ways, we're going to see. He was one of the higher angels. And he says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. It's a mocking statement. He's not the morning star. Jesus is the real bright and morning star. He wanted to be like Christ. And so he's being mocked by God here. Listen to what it says. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You are weak, you, have weak, you who weaken the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to be above the, the angels, whatever. Remember the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. So he wanted to, to put his throne above the stars of heaven. I will also sit, um, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. This is what he said. On the furthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Something that Satan couldn't even get so deceived that he thought he would be above the most high. He talks about being above the stars of God, but I will be like the most high. This is the same thing that he tempted Eve with. In the day that you eat of it, God knows that you will be like him, knowing good from evil. In the days that you eat of it, you'll become like him. And so that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be like God. It's one of the lies sold to mankind today. People will say, well, I believe that in a way I'm God. I'm nature and, and God's got his thumbprint everywhere and everything he made has God's thumbprint on it. And so I'm God. No, that's new age teaching, repackaged to look a certain way. It is, it, is, uh, the, it is the teaching that creation is God and it's unbiblical. It's not the, theistic at all, okay? It's massively unbiblical. Now, in Ezekiel 28, it's talking about Satan again, gives us a little more information. This is Ezekiel 28, 12, son of man, Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the tapos, the diamond, the barrel, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared with you on the day you were created. So it seems like there's a connection with music. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And that was the pride to lift himself up and be like God. Uh, it says, goes on to say, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of of the, fire, uh, the fiery stones. So that's the battle. Michael the archangel and Satan and his angels and it's in heaven and they're cast out. And it says in verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives even until death. So who's he talking about? Got to go back to our text in 10 to get it. 
Uh, then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night has been cast out and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives even to death. Now, when it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, they don't mean pleading the blood. I come out of a Pentecostal background when I was in my early 20s and my late teens. And one of the things that we would do in the Pentecostal churches I was in was plead the blood over people. And pleading the blood was something, the way we did it was just, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. And so the thought was by pleading the blood over someone's life, and I don't remember the first person that, that wrote anything on it. Um, maybe it was Derek Prince, so, someone else from the 60s or so, 1960s or so um, that, that put out a book on pleading the blood. That if, and it goes all the way back to the Azusa Street Revival in 1905. The thing is, it's completely unbiblical. There's, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Why? Not because somebody put their hands on him and said, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood but because Jesus died, the accuser of the brother accused them, but our sins are forgiven, so he couldn't accuse us. We overcame him by the blood of the lamb. How do we overcome the enemy? He wants to destroy us by the blood of the lamb. We find ourselves forgiven and given eternity. That's how we overcome him. And it says, and by the word of their testimony, that is, they told their story. And I want to encourage you to never Think that your story, your account of how Jesus touched you, how you got saved is not powerful. It is. As, a, as an exercise, write your testimony down. Just sit down and write what God did to you. Wherever you feel, whatever, you know, whatever level of writer you are, just sit down and write out your testimony because you have one. I have one. I used to think that my testimony was weak and pitiful I'd hear people's testimony about getting rolling over in a car five times and getting thrown out and being in a coma and, you know, coming to Christ when they came. You hear those testimonies, you go, wow, that's phenomenal. I went to church my whole life. Then somebody asked me what it took to be a Christian and I got saved. Wow. But I find that every time I tell my testimony, of course, with more details, but every time I tell it, there's something powerful about it. Why? Because it's real. It happened to me. I called out on the name of the Lord. I grew up in church. I thought I was saved because I knew he existed. I called out on his name and he transformed me. He brought me deeper into him. He did a work inside of me. That's your testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That is, Satan's the accuser of the brethren. And we're not to love our lives. We're to live for him. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So we overcome him by the power of the blood. In 1 John 2, 22, 15 and 17, it says, do not love this world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that's probably what was in the fruit as well. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, you'll be like God. It's not of the Father, but of the world. And this world is passing away and the lust in it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 
Don't live for the world, but live for him. Matthew 6, 33, one of my favorite verses, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. He's talking about what you eat, drink, or wear. Don't worry about it, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Be about God's business and God will be about your business. They didn't love their lives even unto death because our lives are wrapped up in him. And coming into the, the last days, it's gonna be a lot of people who are, gonna be, um, who are gonna be martyred for Christ. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. So now that he's come down to earth, he's gonna hit the earth, and this is the middle of the tribulation period, with great wrath. Now not only do you have God's wrath coming upon the world, but Satan with his wrath. And it says, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's the nation of Israel. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to a place where she is nourished for a times, times and a half a times, three and a half years from the presence of the, of the serpent. So the dragon wants to attack Israel, but now God supernaturally protects them in the wilderness. Now, some see the United States on the wings of an eagle, but there's a reference in, in Exodus about them coming out of Exodus. It says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So that's not America. I don't think every time we see e eagle's wings, we're gonna think America. Maybe, and it would be great if America's used that way in the last days, but I don't think that's what it is. And then in verse 15, it says, so he's trying to, to persecute the woman, but he can't. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now, this may literally be a flood, but the Bible often talks about war as a flood. The end will come with a flood. Talking about the end of the world. What happens at the end of the world? The, the battle of Armageddon. So the Bible will use a flood to reference a battle or a war. So he, he opens up his mouth and he causes, hoping they'll be carried away by the flood. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened up and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And so now something supernatural happens and the army is either swallowed up by the earth or the actual flood, if it's a literal flood, is swallowed up by the ground. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now we know Israel is being protected. We have tribulation saints who are now, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where he causes people to take the mark and they can't buy or sell. We're right in that window. We're gonna learn about those things in the next couple of chapters. And so now there's gonna be a lot of, of Christians who've been able to maintain during the first part of the tribulation period, they became Christians after the rapture of the church, after that resurrection, they gave their lives to Christ and he now turns to them. Others believe he's talking about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation and that they are sealed by God, but it doesn't mean their lives can't be taken from them. I don't know, that's just the ideas, um, but he turns to the rest of her offspring and who are these offspring? who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that would fit the tribulation saints 
but it would also fit the 144,000 that are sealed if they are not taken into the wilderness. I don't know why halfway in you have perhaps the death of the, you love how I, I throw in perhaps, right? Because we're talking about such complicated things. We see the, the um, witnesses either in the first half or the second half of the, the tribulation. I'm trying to find information or I'm trying to find something the Bible says that would give us a clue where that's at. So if you're, you're, if you're up for doing some research, go ahead, go after it. But now we see that he attacks the rest of them that have the testimony of the name of Jesus Christ. Now, three things in closing, three things to remember. We're in that time where the accuser of the brethren is accusing us. He's tempting us and he's accusing us. So we overcome him by the power of the blood. Listen, if you've got a family member that's really struggling, they've gotten into addiction, they've gotten into just some thought or some idea, you don't need to take them aside and, and, and plead the blood over them. You need to pray for them in the name of Jesus Christ. You need to ask the Father to do something in their lives in the name of Jesus Christ who was resurrected. There is no act like pleading the blood and there's other things that Christian groups will begin to do that are gonna take the place of prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in that day, you will ask my father in my name and he will give to you. And so we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. And I would be, I, I, I am that deliberate when I pray. When I'm praying for someone that's struggling in whatever way, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this from happening, work in their lives, bind the enemy. Those are the kind of prayers that I pray. I have no desire to try to plead the blood like there's some magic little phrase that you can say. Praying in the name of Jesus Christ is not a magical phrase. It is us remembering that he raised from the dead and he's given a name that is above all other names and that we have been told to ask the Father in the name of Jesus. And so that's what we do. Doesn't mean we can't talk to the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean we can't talk to Jesus. It means we don't ask Jesus or the Holy Spirit. We ask the Father in the name of Jesus, the blood of the lamb, that our sins would be forgiven, knowing that we have a slanderer. You ever been slandered by anyone? Someone said something about you that wasn't true. It's an it's a interesting feeling because you know it's not true, but you hear people saying it to you. No wonder the Bible, has what, as one of the Ten Commandments, don't bear false witness. We, we, we joke about whether or not it's okay to lie, right? But the Ten Commandments don't say thou shalt not lie. I don't think it's okay to lie, by the way unless you're throwing a surprise card for your husband and then go ahead, okay? But um, it says don't bear false witness, which is what? Slander. So when you stretch the truth or you tell something about somebody that's not true, then you're slandering. The second was the word of our testimony that we tell people, our tell people how you got saved. Tell people what Jesus did for you. and not, living, not loving their own lives, that they were living for Christ, that if they died tomorrow, it would be okay because I'm living for Jesus today. That's the way we're supposed to live. And that may be rare in the day that we're living, but it's what we need to do, not love the world and live for Christ. The life I now live, I live for him in the flesh in the son of God.
I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said. And that's what we're to do, not love our lives, but to love that we can be living sacrifices for him. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to look at this text. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us here tonight. Thank you that we can consider Michael, the archangel, fighting against Satan. And that it wasn't even Jesus that had to cast him out of heaven, but it was Michael who was able to do that. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would trust in the blood of the Lamb, the forgiveness of our sins, and that we would pray for people around us in the name of Jesus, not trying to do something like pleading the blood, which is just not in the Bible, but actually doing what's in the Bible, which says to pray, ask the Father in the name of the Son. And so, Lord, we're asking you to help those around us who need you. Those who we're thinking about right now, we, we, you need to, we, we believe you need to intervene. They need you. They need you to do a work inside of their lives and we pray that you would do it in the name of Jesus Christ who was resurrected. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.